Jeff, it is Christmas Adam, so the predecessor to Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve Eve, as people other people may call it. Is well your done. is your family a Christmas family or a Christmas Eve family? Like, which meal is your like fancy? We are celebrating the birth of Christ meal, not just shoving our face with whatever we have to have, happen to have around because it's the holidays meal. So growing up, Christmas Eve was not even a day. Like it wasn't even something that was really looked forward to. I didn't like with my parents, we didn't open presents. We didn't have a big dinner. Rarely did family come over or anything like that. It was all Christmas. It wasn't until I got married that my wife is like shocked that I had to work on Christmas Eve. And she just looked at me and was like, wait a minute, what? Like, how on earth are you working Christmas Eve? It's the biggest day of the year. So now we do both because either side of the family has its own little traditions. But for my whole life, it was just Christmas. Christmas Eve wasn't even a thing. And it was a very foreign concept for me when it became a second holiday as part of Christmas. Yeah, my family is, I've seen a lot of people kind of debate this of, you know, what they do. And my family, I guess, is a little different because my mom's birthday is on Christmas Day. So it was always Christmas Eve was the fancy dinner holiday. And then Christmas morning, open presents, and then kind of get to like, you know, early afternoon. And then it kind of transitioned away from Christmas into my mom's birthday. But actually, fun fact, actually, both of my parents' birthdays are on Christmas. But my dad's birthday is on January 7th. And the Easter, like the Greek and Russian Orthodox church, all the, the not Catholic church, all the Orthodox churches, they celebrate Christmas on January 7th because they still, mm-hmm, they do all religious holidays are done off of the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. So like in like the 1500s, when they added two weeks and then made up leap year, cause they were like, Oh, we've been doing math wrong. They still do all. Well, the Soviet union didn't switch to the normal calendar until like 1918 when the Soviet Union was created after the revolution. That's when they were like, okay, we should have a calendar that matches the rest of the world. Um, But then they weird, but yeah, so everything they celebrate Christmas on two weeks later on January 7th um, until actually it's only for like the next like a hundred years or something like that. There's like a calculation of like, Oh, we pick up this much time. So so in like 2020, 52 or whatever, we're going to switch to January 8th instead of January 7th, because then we'll be (laughs) have to be off by the right amount or whatever. But that's so weird. Well, I mean, it's not weird, I guess, to them. Let me ask you this. Did you. So, okay, that's I mean, you mentioned Soviet Union. Do you have like relatives from Russia? Like, is that where your bloodlines go back? Not Russia. Well, I mean, I guess if you go back far enough, everything's about the same. So my mom's my mom is part Czech. And so there's like her grandparent, one of her grandparents was Czech. And okay. uh, so like, that's, that's like the closest and they came over to the US in like the 1800s. Um, and so that's like the closest like Slavic thing, but the Czech, like Czechia borders Ukraine. So that's like, it's like everything well, that started with the Kievan Rus is like the Slavic tribe started near Kiev. Like that's where- And that, that was, that's the reason I was asking. Cause I know that you served your mission in like Ukraine. Were you in Ukraine or Russia? I can't remember where you were. Uh, Ukraine, but one area that I served in was what was annexed in 2014 by Russia. Okay. And like when Putin invaded, whatever. So I just hear that so frequently that like where somebody ends up serving their mission, like you can sort of loosely tie- and sometimes very, very direct, but at least loosely tie some of their family heritage back to 
where they served their mission a little bit. I mean, my brother. I've never been able to do that in Madagascar. That was <laughs> random. Where the only thing I know about Madagascar is that in, oh shoot, what was it? What What are some of those old church movies? What's the one? I can't even remember what it's called. Uh, line upon line, precept on precept. They have the song. Oh, another one you're talking about. I can't remember what it's called. Somebody tell us. Whatever that one is, in the very opening scene, it, in when they're in the pre-existence, they talk about uh, if you're, uh, I don't know, if you misbehave or whatever in the pre-existence, then you have to go to Madagascar on your mission. And that's the only thing that I can tie to Madagascar. But other people can be like, yeah, my mom was Czech, and so sort of we have this weird, like, loose tie to where you served, but. Yeah, so I, I didn't know that about my dad either until I went on my mission. And then it was huh. like, I was like, why do they do that? And then I was like, oh, that makes sense. And it's weird. So Easter is weird because sometimes Easter is the same day. Sometimes it's a month before. Sometimes it's a month after. Sometimes it's two weeks after because Easter itself is already even like figured out That's based on like the moon. Yeah. It's like the second Sunday after the third full moon of the new year or something weird like that. I don't know. Um, but man, let's get into our show today. And was last night fun or what? It was, man, I mean, it was one of the most fun BYU football games that I remember ever watching. I, I, I don't know how to explain it because, like, there's different variations of fun, right? Like that Nebraska game in 2015, like, that was a heck of a lot of fun. It was stressful. It was whatever. But this UCF game it was a different kind of fun. Like it was, it was out of control in the first quarter. BYU was up 21, nothing at the end of the first quarter. Uh, By so the way, wasn't, did you know that BYU had as many possessions against UCF as it did against coastal Carolina. I just want to <laughs> throw that out there. I did not. I did not know that, but I, I'm glad you pointed that out. That's funny. Um, no. So the game was out of hand very, very early on. And so there was no stress, right, of like, are they going to win or are they not? But there's been lots of games like that this year, and it hasn't been that fun. Like that was – I don't know if it was just the – we all kind of know that this is Zach Wilson's last game. And so it was like, oh, man, enjoy it while it lasts because he's going to go. Well, I don't know if it was on the heels of two weeks' worth of – well, really more than that, several weeks' worth of everybody talking about how bad the defense is for them to go and just – pretty much locked down one of the best offenses in the country. Like that was really cool. Well, so I don't know what like it was. Very unprecedented. But then the last yeah. time that UCF scored fewer than 25, 24 points in a game was their bowl game in 2016 against Arkansas state in Scott yeah, I mean, Frost's first year there. And so I, I had the thought about this year's BYU team. So obviously they didn't get to play the P5s that everybody wanted them to play. Uh, but they played arguably, not even, I don't even think it's arguably, but over the last decade, the two premier G5 teams have been Boise State and UCF. And they obliterated both of them. And I know that, you, you know, in any given year, there's a year like this year where Cincinnati is the premier G5 team and random coastal Carolina type teams pop up every year. But over the course of the last decade, and, and when you look at, consistency over that decade i don't think it's even up for debate it's boise state and it's ucf those are the two premier g5 teams it sort of feels like byu ended both of them like harson's god we're going to talk about that later on but byu just obliterates 
Boise State. And you see, and UCF fans are not high on Hypel. They want high, a lot of them want Hypel gone. Similar yeah. to Boise State fans who think you know we're too good for Brian Harson and he's not good enough. So it's I mean it rocked their fan base, many of their fans, right? Obviously, at least the ten percenters who are the annoying <laughs> ones. Well, I mean it did, and it feels like these are the kinds of losses for those programs that reverberate over time. It's it's not. I mean, it's a different type of loss, but it's the same kind of feel to like that. When was it? Was it 2000? I guess it was 2016. No, it was 2017. So 2017, when Utah State beat BYU, and then they followed it up in 2018 and beat them again. That loss, now obviously Ty Detmer had already been fired by 2018, and that was the loss that ultimately benched Tanner Mangum and brought Zach Wilson in. Remember, Zach came in in that first for that last drive, last couple of drives against Utah State in 18. But it felt like that loss to the Aggies in that game was the pivotal moment for, for BYU. Like they had to change everything because of that loss. And that's what they did. That was a team in 18 that had beaten Wisconsin, they'd beaten Arizona, like they had had some success, but that loss brought back all of the the feelings of that 2018 or 2017 awful season. And there had to be immediate changes. They they, they benched Tanner Mangum, who had been the poster boy of BYU football, bench Tanner Mangum, bring in this new kid who's a Utah fan, and they changed the way that the offense looks. And over 18 and 19, there's ups and downs, but ultimately it, it all culminated into this 2020 season that we've seen what Zach has become. But it was that loss that, in my opinion, kind of was the, the catalyst to get all of that in motion. It feels like the loss that BYU handed Boise State and the loss that BYU handed UCF last night that's the same type of loss. Like it is going to create change in those two programs. We've already seen Harson's left. Harson was fed. Up. I, I don't know that it was directly tied to the BYU loss. I doubt it, but it was like, okay, BYU crushes Boise state. And it was only a couple of weeks later that all of a sudden we start hearing the, the, the reports about how upset Brian Harson is with the mountain West and that Boise state is looking at, at the American like there's a lot of just big, huge changes, big, huge things that are happening with that program. And it kind of feels like BYU was the exclamation point at the end of that for Boise State. Kind of what I feel when I, 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 I'm afraid I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but that's kind of what I feel happened in 2018. Like, you know, Kalani had fired Ty Detmer, brought in Jeff Grimes. They had this kid quarterback, Zach Wilson out of Corner Canyon. And then they lost to Utah State. And then it was like, okay, guys, we can't talk about it anymore. It's time to change. There's no more future changes. Now's the time. And all of the pieces were in place, but that was when the, the, the key finally turned, right? When the ignition was finally turned on and change happened. I'm anxious to see if it's a similar turn of events for Boise State and UCF that have been premier programs. And I wonder with Boise State how much, because it, it kind of feels like the magic has kind of slipped a bit um because they you know obviously they got their rise and were great in the big west and then they moved into the whack um and just ran up the score on everyone and that was like their calling card right and then now it's they i mean they had dirk cotter and then they promoted dan hawkins who was cotter's offensive coordinator hawkins left then they promoted peterson who was 
Hawkins offensive coordinator. And then Peterson left and they brought back Brian Harson, who was an alum who also was an offensive coordinator. Like he was Kellen Moore's offensive coordinator when he during that peak, uh, you know, there what the 2006 to 2011, which was the Boise state equivalent of BYU 78 to 85. And they, and now it's like, who are they going to move to a defensive minded coach and Andy Avalos? So they're going to get Zach Hill to come back from Arizona state. Are they going to bring Kellen Moore back? Does Kellen Moore even want to leave the NFL? And it feels like there is nobody there who is really, I guess, ready to make that jump. Cause Peterson was kind of, I mean, everyone said, Oh, Peterson's kind of was kind of the brains behind this. And he had been the coordinator for a long time. Uh, you know, it was there for a few years and had a lot of experience, but, and then Harson obviously had head coaching experience as well, but it's, I mean, you, now you but have, there was the family, right? Like they always hired within the Boise state family. Right. And now obviously now there's not Avalos, a natural fit. Uh, there's Avalos. Played, he played at Boise. And I think every Boise state fan wants every Boise state fan wants to go in on Kellen Moore, but it feels like that could be a little bit of a Ty Detmer situation, right? Right. I mean, it's just different in recruiting and understanding the college game. It's just different. There are fundamentally different things between being a coach in college and in the NFL. And it's not, I think Kellen Moore on the field, X's and O's, that's not, that wouldn't be the problem with him taking over that job. I mean, but you have Avalos who, you know, he was the Boise state defensive coordinator, for three years. And then now he's been at um, Oregon for the last two years, but it's like, is he ready to, is a guy who graduated from college in 2005 ready to be the head coach at that program? And does he, I mean, what that does he, I mean, cause Brian Harson is also from Boise. Like he grew up in Boise, right. played at Boise. Yeah. It makes sense for him to go back to Boise. Does Avalos want that? Or, you know, does he's from Southern California? Does he, want to stay in a P5 and he's like, well, if I hang out under Cristobal for another couple of years, then I'm either, you know, I will get a shot at a bigger program or, you know, right. it's how much I think he's making like 800,000. So it's money isn't a problem for him, for the Boise budget, but it's, you know, it's very interesting to see what will happen. I think I would not be surprised if Randy Shannon, the defensive coordinator at UCF gets let go because they've had problems on their defense for the last couple of years. And he hasn't been very good the whole time he's been there. Um, but it's, I mean, that is something where that game last night, it was the last quarter and a half were really boring, which is almost like the best game to have, right? Like we finished our scoring with 10 minutes left in the third quarter, but I want your opinion on something. I know a lot of people were upset about taking a knee to end out the game at the 10 yard line, instead of just scoring. Do you feel that that is like very like too merciful or sportsmanlike, or is it almost like this is sportsmanship, but also it's kind of a slap in the face of like, we just drove down the field on you at will. We know you don't care. You've checked out already and we're going to get right down to your goal line and kneel it in your face. Like we're toying with you. Yeah. Or mix of both. uh, I think it can be both. I think doing it at the goal line is different. If they take a knee at the 50, like that's sportsmanship, right? But uh, look, I have never, um, I've never accused Kyle Whittingham of not being afraid to run up the score, right? Like Kyle Whittingham is kicking onside kicks against Wyoming at, when they're up by like 40 whatever points. So I have no doubt in my mind that Kyle Whittingham has no shame in, in you know, pouring a little salt into the wound. And when Kyle Whittingham runs to the goal line 
against BYU in 2019 and takes a knee, I don't think that's sportsmanship. I think that's, hey, tell your friends that, you, yeah, you only lost by nine or whatever the score was, but we all know. We all know it could have been more. And it's like this, it almost feels like it's this big brother thing of like, okay, little brother, yes, sportsmanship in air quotes, but in reality, it's like this dominate like thing over that you you hold over your opponent and i feel like that's what it was uh, and, and especially in this bowl game style points didn't matter anymore so there's no sense in running up the score and so for for kalani to start taking a knee with more than two minutes left on the clock and just really let it run out he had to take they had to kneel three times in order to run the clock out to me that feels a little bit like yeah, we got you. Like it's 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 beyond sportsmanship. I don't think it's sportsmanship. I think it is a little bit of a taunt, right? And it's it's just kind of weird though because it was. I mean, both halves, right, came out and absolutely punched them, and it was similar to what we saw. I mean, from the UCF side, it, their offense felt very much 2013. Robert and I go fast, go hard, right? Like it's the flip side yeah. of you can rack up points quick, but when it's not working, it is very much not working. And yeah, those three and, so, and outs to, to start the second half, those and were so it's, killers. I mean, we put up 14 points in the first five minutes of both halves. And then with nine minutes left in the third quarter, BYU was done scoring. And it was just very ho-hum after that, kind of doing our thing, whatever. Um, you know, but there's, you know, it's, yeah, that was an awesome game. And I think it's everything. It was just the perfect cap on a great season. Like it was a fantastic season. Anyone who wants to complain about the one loss to a top 15 team, like I will just unfollow you. I don't need you in my life. Like if you like, just, if you cannot sit back and look back at this year and just be happy that you got to enjoy watching Zach Wilson play and got to enjoy watching an absolutely elite offense and a very good defense and see for the first time in forever a BYU team that has multiple NFL talents at multiple positions, including guys that are going to declare for the draft and get drafted very high and have a top five pick. It's like, if you can't just enjoy that for what it is because it wasn't a perfect season, go find a new hobby. Like this is not for you. Well, and and you go cheer for somebody else. Horrible. Like, like if you want to be that miserable, go root for Utah state because they will always give you something to be unhappy about. <laughs> I mean, really like Alabama loses games, you know, like Clemson loses games. They lost this year. Like there's only a handful of programs that can possibly offer that kind of success. What BYU did this year is great. Uh, we're going to talk about our of the year awards probably next week, you know, in theme with New Year's. We'll be recording on New Year's, Adam. So uh, we will go over some of those things and kind of do a review of the year next year or next week, rather. But yeah, man, I mean, this year was special. This year was, this was the year that fans have been clamoring for for a very, very long time. And the difference between this year versus, say, 2001 is BYU ended on a high note. Yeah. 2001, Cougars are 12 and 0, and then they stumble the last two games, and it hurts and it leaves this sour taste. I remember I was 12 years old, that was like 96. I remember BYU being good, and I remember my dad being excited. But 2001 was the first time I remember being super excited about a BYU football team. And 
I remember the sour taste after BYU lost the last two games and got obliterated by Hawaii. Like it hurt. Uh, but it's different this year. The loss came under crazy circumstances that, you know, in retrospect, it's hard to travel across the country and play another undefeated team on three days notice. I, I, that's the only, the only regret, I guess, that I, I would say I have and that I think a lot of the players and coaches have is not respecting maybe how hard that would be. I don't think BYU thought that they could just waltz into Coastal Carolina and win that game, but I don't know. I think if they would have realized how hard it would have been to prepare, especially for that offense on that short of a notice, I don't know that they would have accepted the game. Like we, we talked about it at the time they had to under the, you know, under the context of what 2020 brought, there really was no choice, but to play that game to, in, in an effort to try and secure a new year six bowl bid or whatever they had to play that game. But I think what we all learned is that that was a lot harder to do than what anybody thought it was. And so in retrospect, I think BYU would have not done that or they would have said, yeah, we'll play, but let's play on Monday or done something like that in an effort to buy another day or two to review film. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, I'm not going to fall. People also act. I think it's people expected to blow them out because they be, oh, it's just a lowly Sunbelt team. And we talked about that before, right? But it's, you know, that was still, that was a hard fought game where we came up one yard short and had multiple chances to win a game on the road on two days of notice against a top 15 team. Like with two teams that are very comparatively good, that is the exact kind of game you expect. Like that was a slugfest and it, we were on the losing end of it, but if you play that game five times in in Conway and five times in Provo, probably go one team probably goes six and four, right? In this year, if you play that 10 times this year, because it's two evenly matched teams who are very good. And that's not, I mean, the same way, you know, it's obviously Coastal Carolina is a good team. BYU obliterating UCF does not take away anything from what UCF is right. Like it doesn't mean anything about UCF because obviously, so UCF, they lost by Cincy to Cincy by three. That obviously Cincy is a very good team. They lost to Tulsa at, at the very end of the game, also by one score, like Tulsa is a top 25 team. And then they lost in a shootout 50 to 49 and their kicker missed multiple, missed a PAT and a couple other, in a chip, couple chip shot field goals to beat Memphis. Like those were their three losses were all very, very close. And last night, you know, BYU beat them by what was I saw right CFB is all of their losses dating back to 2017 combined have been like, well, I guess they were undefeated into it. So it's dating back to the Fiesta Bowl in 2018. BYU led them by every loss since the 2018 Fiesta Bowl, the last two seasons. Combined. The, point the point differential in the last two games, I guess the negative point differential in the last two games and their losses was less than what they lost by last night. Is that what you're saying? No, like last two seasons. So like they lost oh, by three to Cincinnati, one to Memphis. It was like, okay, um, I get it. Let me see. So they on so they lost thirty last by eight to Tulsa, three to Cincinnati, and one to Memphis. So that's twelve. And then however last year when they went ten and three, they lost three games. And then the festival against LSU. So like the total point differential last night was like the same as the last two and a half seasons. That was so, a it like, was a crazy game. Like everything, everything BYU did was great. It was like this perfect illustration of what Zach Wilson 
has become during his time at BYU. And I think that's what made it so fun is it was a team in UCF who's good, who's respected. And Zach just had his way. And so did Tyler Algier for that matter. Like they both did basically whatever they wanted. And okay. So what was your favorite play of the game? Was it besides the Katoa layout catch? That was unbelievable. And I, I really like fo- the sequence of that followed up with the th- touchdown throw to Pau. Like that might be the best two play sequence of the entire season. Yeah. And I think that that is my favorite play. That throw to Pau was, uh, I, I think it's one of Zach's top five throws, probably top three. I don't think it's my favorite throw. My favorite throw is still his just rope of a touchdown pass to Gunnar Romney against Louisiana Tech that uh, he threw from the far hash. It was about 30 yards. It looked like a fairly innocent play, but when you sit and break it down, it was like, holy cow, like he had about three inches to throw this ball into. I think, and he made it look easy. My favorite throw was the, uh, is it the third down? It was like third and two, whatever the touchdown in the fourth quarter against Houston to Milne. Oh yeah. The winner. It was like third and 15. Yeah. Oh yeah. Is like everyone expected BYU to go conservative and just kind of center up a field goal. And he reads one-on-one coverage with Milne on the outside and puts it in the bread. I think, I think that one was probably it just because I was misremembered. I was thinking it was third and short and you were expecting like something quick to convert or whatever. Um, But now I remember it's third and 15 and you're, you know, you're expecting something conservative, either set up a field goal or get into a manageable fourth and short. You have two plays in mind, but that one, just because that was a, like, that was a big baller move right there. Mm-hmm. Like to just be like, Nope, I see it. I trust it. I'm gonna throw it. And I'm going to put it over tight coverage over a guy who's going to get NFL looks into my receiver's hands. Like I think that those three throws that you mentioned are probably his three best throws of the season. There- Besides the couple turnaround like just beautiful throws where Mill knew that it was going to be short and just looked around and it was right there and just completely broke his route off and just somehow magically oh, yeah. all being thrown into his back is just like oh yes I know I like we have this kind of, <laughs> I know the ball is going to be there I don't know if you saw this or not I actually posted an article today my 20 favorite throws from Zach it started out as an article was my 10 favorite throws And I eliminated like a good amount, probably 15 plus throws from my list as I was going through his season highlights over the last day or so. And I eliminated what I thought was a bunch. And I thought, okay, I probably have 12, 13. Let's go make some cuts now. And I pulled up my list of the plays that I had cut up and I had 20. So I went ahead and just turned it into the top 20 throws, my favorite 20 throws. Uh, He had a throw against UTSA. Okay, so everybody remembers the Chiefs play against Houston where he does the little underhand toss to Mason Wake. Uh, Against UTSA, this was maybe his most creative throw this year and in his career, but he, he feels the pressure coming from one side and Zach steps up into the pocket and he looks like he's going to run. Like it, It's hard to tell on the film that we can see, but it looks like he's even has the ball tucked, like he's getting ready to run. But then he sees a linebacker come in and he looks at Neil Powell, who has just planted himself 
about four yards past the line of scrimmage. And he looks at Neil Pau and it looks like he's a point guard running a fast break. He looks at Pau and then he throws a chest pass, like a basketball chest pass that it's easy to say, oh, it's a shovel pass. He threw it 12 yards. Like this is a chest pass. This isn't like a little three yard shovel pass. This is a full fledged throws it 12 yards in the air to Mason wake. And the Mason wake went and did a hurdle afterwards. And that's what caught all the attention. But that throw was unbelievable because he had to have the awareness to one, feel the pressure two have the IQ to know where his crossing route was coming from. And three have the creativity to throw a chest pass while looking off a linebacker, with a no look chest pass to hit his receiver in stride 12 yards down the field. It was, it was incredible to me as I watched that today and put that into that article. It was Holy cow. Like that really was a special throw and nobody remembers that it happened. I didn't remember that it had happened. And I think that's like one of the marks of a great quarterback, right? Like if you look at someone, if you're, I'm evaluating a quarterback, I want somebody who does not ideally it's like you want someone who kind of makes a difference. Like you look at them and you say, this guy elevated their program, right? And De- Zach Wilson definitely did that. Obviously someone who wins games, Zach Wilson did that. You want, obviously you want, I think you want great throws that are not remembered. Like you said, cause it's like, there's so many of them that stuff like that. That's like anybody else. Like you see someone do that and you're like, Oh man, that was a crazy, like what is a highlight for someone else becomes so routine because you almost like expect it. Right. You see that. And then on partly to like, and this goes back to like elevating the program. It's like, I mean, you prefer somebody who doesn't come from an elite program, or at least a lot of people who could write. Cause it's like, there's a reason that even though they have similar stats, Zach Wilson is getting talked about being a top five pick, but Mac Jones isn't because everyone knows that Mac Jones walked into a system where a lot of very good quarterbacks could have been in there. Like they, he didn't elevate anything, even the way Tua did, because it was, or Alabama's offense was okay. And then Tua showed up and it became otherworldly. And it was like, oh, this dude was a game changer at Alabama. Whoa. And now Mac Jones is like, okay, yeah, that's kind of what we expected any above average FBS starter to do with those pieces around him. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of, all-time QB ranks, BYU, where does he stand for you? Dude, it's so tough. For me, at least if you go back to 2000, he's number one because he is John Beck's arm and Max Hall's attitude rolled into one. I Oh, that's close for me. I think I say number one, but Max Hall just won so many games and there is value in durability and longevity. And so I feel like I probably have to say, I mean, look, Zach won 11 games this year. That was great. Uh, Max won 10 plus games three times. Yeah. There's something about that. Uh, man, all time. It's hard because there's recency bias and everybody has to recognize that. He's behind McMahon. He's behind uh, Detmer. I think I put him ahead of Steve Young. He broke Steve Young's completion record. Steve Young, when he was at BYU, he was special. Like he was great in 1983. He was really, really great in 1983. But it's hard to separate Steve Young, the BYU quarterback, from Steve Young, the San Francisco 49er. Right. Steve Young, the BYU quarterback, I think Zach is probably above him. Um, and so then you're looking at, yeah, it's like McMahon, Detmer, 
And for me, then that's where I get in. They're, they're, those two are kind of on the, the a tier of their own. And then tier two is, uh, is Hall, it is Young, and it is Wilson. And I think I put Hall, or I think I put Wilson probably right at the top of that tier two. So officially looking it up, Zach Wilson is the all BYU's career leader now in passer efficiency rating. He edged out with last night's performance. He is now just ahead of Ty Detmer. Um, and in terms of a season efficiency, uh, they need to filter all these out. So he is number one this season at 196.44. Jim McMahon, 1980, is the second most efficient season by quarterback at 176. Yeah, uh, he and was then, exceptional, and I think, golly, he really is right there with in that number three range. I think what you have to, what I have to do is I have to look at kind of what you were just talking about, Garrett. Like, what did they do for the program? Where was the program when they stepped in? And McMahon was really kind of the first, like, yes, I know Mark Wilson, Gary Shidey, they were there, but McMahon was kind of the passer who put BYU's passing offense on the map. He won the first bowl game. He did things that no BYU quarterback had done. And so for that reason, McMahon is always going to be my number one, unless somebody is just otherworldly when, when they play at BYU. Detmer, he was also, he wasn't really a pioneer, right? But by the time Detmer got to Provo, the passing offense had caught on. Like everybody knew what BYU was doing, and there were lots of people who were throwing the ball around. Not as much as BYU necessarily, but it wasn't like this crazy thing that nobody had ever heard of. The passing offense was back. But Detmer did crazy things and had crazy stats, and he had BYU in a very, very good spot. 1990, people forget. He won the Heisman, yes. BYU was ranked number four going into that last game against Hawaii. So he had BYU at a very, very high level. They were ranked throughout that 1990 season. They beat the number one team. The only time BYU has ever done that. So I, I, and obviously the hardware, right? So I put, I put Detmer there. The reason I think, as I, as I think through this out loud, the reason I think I agree with you and I put Wilson ahead of Hall is because of where the program was when Zach came in. Zach didn't come in to John Beck's BYU. Zach didn't come in with Austin Colley and with Dennis Pitta and with Harvey Younga. Zach came in in 2017. He came in, he agreed to come to BYU when BYU was at uh, really a 40-year low, when they were at their lowest point since before Jim McMahon, right? I mean, that's, I don't think that's... That's not me making that up. That's not embellishment. 2017 was the lowest point in BYU football before since before Lavelle Edwards took over yeah, as the head. Coach. It was bad. He came in there at that point and he really rebuilt. He did for BYU in 2018, 19, 2020, really what Bronco did, right? Like Bronco took a program as a head coach that was in a real dark spot and he came in and he helped bring that program back to what it was so that when you look at it over time, people are going to look back at BYU and they're not going to remember BYU for that 2017 program the same way they don't really remember BYU for Gary Croton's 2003, 2004 teams. If Zach does not come, I don't know where this program is. If Zach does not come to BYU in 2017, 
I don't, I don't think, think Kalani Satake is the coach. I, I don't think Kalani Satake is the coach. I don't have any idea where they are in terms of relevance. I, I think there's a reasonable argument to make that they wouldn't have played at all this year because they wouldn't have won. They wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been able to win games. The Sun Belt wouldn't have been like begging to play BYU because BYU would have been on three straight years of ugh, and breaking in a new coach. I think BYU probably closes up shop when the Pac-12 and the Mountain West did, and then they never get back into it. I mean, I don't, maybe that's, maybe that's a little bit, uh, I don't know what the word is. Maybe that's too much of a, a, a pessimistic outlook, but I, I think that that's a reasonable take. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily the most likely, but it was definitely a plausible timeline. Right? Yeah, I think so. Like it's not so, extreme. And so what Zach did to come to that program, the program that had just lost, I mean, that's what's so crazy is Zach signed early. He signed in December, 2017. It was less than a month after BYU had lost at home to UMass on senior day. Zach Wilson turned down P5 opportunities to come to that BYU. And now BYU is looking at, I think the top 15 is a certainty at this point. And I think that they could sneak into the top 10 in postseason rankings this week or this year after that win against UCF. Yeah, because it's, I mean, what is it? All right, we have a visitor in we the have studio. A friend. Yes, we have Pork Chop McClintock is sitting next to me. I love stu- it. Um, yeah, so it's, I think definitely it's, I have a script running right now because we've talked about uh, Tanya, right? The total adjusted net yards per attempt, meaning your, your, your passing yards, your rushing yards, rushing touchdowns, passing touchdowns, and then take out yardage for interceptions and turnovers um, just to see where he ranks all time. Because I think, I mean, Zach Wilson had more touchdowns in this season alone playing in roughly 10 games because he sat, you know, parts of the third quarter in like seven fourth quarters of the season um, (laughs) and only played 11 games instead of, or only played 12 games instead of 13. Zach Wilson accounted for more touchdowns in this season than Tanner Mangum did for his four-year career. It's crazy, which I mean, I mean it really is crazy. I don't want to di- like, you know, jump on Tanner and be like, oh, you got benched for Zach, whatever. But it's just to like kind of put that into some perspective. And even I don't even know how many career touchdowns did Taysom Hill have. Um, but I it's, mean, he, Zach had Zach had eight rushing touchdowns. That's easy to forget. That in total, Zach accounted for. Uh, oh, Zach had ten rushing touchdowns, didn't he? Yeah, he had 10 yeah. rushing touchdowns after his two last night. And then he had 33 passing touchdowns. That's yeah. a lot of touchdowns. So obviously Taysom had all of his rushing touchdowns. But so Zach finished this year with 43 total touchdowns. And Taysom Hill had 43 passing touchdowns in his five-year BYU career. And then he added 32 <laughs> more on the ground. But well, think of think of Taysom's best year was really his only complete year in 2013. Taysom had 10 rushing touchdowns on the ground and 19 pass touchdowns. Yep. Zach had 14 more touchdowns that year, this year, than Taysom Hill did in 2013. Yeah. It I mean, it was just an incredible season. And I am 
I feel very blessed that even though 2020 was awful, we got to witness this. And also I just saw an NFL reporter say that apparently from conversation, it sounds like the New York Jets are more likely to trade down to get more draft picks than to take a quarterback at number two. So good. Oh, praise be to the glory, all highest, whatever God you pray to, this is the time to pray to that God. If it's our God here, the church of Jesus Christ, the BYU God, if you will, please offer him a thank you tonight, assuming that comes to fruition and the Jets do trade down. If it's some other God, maybe you don't pray to any God. Maybe you are a believer in a great spirit. Offer thanks to that great spirit. Maybe you are an atheist and you don't believe in anything. That's fine too. Tell your wife thank you. Tell your kids thank you. Somebody, everybody needs to thank somebody for this report that the Jets could trade down. I've never understood this. I don't know why the Jets, okay, I get why they would take Trevor Lawrence, number one. Trevor Lawrence is insane. But if once they won, inexplicably, why would they not look at, like, if they're going to take a pick at number two, why not take Penny Sewell? Why not solidify it's the to worst offensive line ever? It doesn't make sense. The quarterback does not fix the Jets. The J-E-T-S, Jets, 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 S-U-C-K, suck, suck, suck. And Zach, I would seriously, and I say this is a little bit hyperbolic, but not really. I would consider coming back to BYU if the alternative was going to the Jets. That's, yeah. I mean, uh, so this finally finished running. Sorry, it, I went went back and pulled every BYU quarterback season since 1978. And uh, the previous high for total adjusted net yards per attempt was John Beck senior year at 9.15. Below that was Ty Detmer's junior year at 9.09. And then you have 1980 Jim McMahon, 1983 Steve Young, kind of that rounded out. That was the other, you know, the rest of the uh, top five there. Zach Wilson popped in this season, 11.31 yards per play. We've got to factor in schedule strength, right? Well, I I mean, mean, it's not like those 83 teams were playing juggernauts either, but no. Yeah, they were not. So that is something. I mean, so this season, when you put that in perspective of what he was doing and his passer rating and like how he played, it's, he is really unmatched. Like it has never, I mean, you're looking at two and a half y- adjusted yards per play more. Like that's a huge amount. A like if difference. you, if you flip that down the other way, that's like, you're talking about. So it's like the gap between him and uh, John Beck and Ty Detmer and Jim McMahon below though, like that tier, the other way, that gap is like, you're talking 2011 Riley Nelson and Mm -hmm. 2018 freshman Zach Wilson. That's the gap we're talking about. That's a big gap. I lied. I did the math wrong. It's further down than that. We're talking uh, 2014 Christian Stewart. Well, that's because he never threw the ball or never, never ran the ball. Well, it's like uh, close to freshman year Tanner Mangum the gap between senior jo- this season, Zach Wilson to 
senior John Beck is about the same as freshman Tanner Mangum to, to senior John Beck. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty wild. Um, and it's not just Zach. We, we need to, we need to have a sincere thank you and appreciation segment for Brady Christensen. I came across Brady Christensen. Um, I mean, everybody knows who Brady Christensen is. It's not like this was a secret, but one play really stood out as I was putting together this Zach film today. I think you'll remember this. It was, it was, I think Gunner's Gunner's first catch that was just short of the end zone against Louisiana tech that Zach kind of scrambles out and throws it right at the corner of the, like right at the pylon and Gunner makes a great catch stays in bounds, but it's ruled just short of the, uh, just short of the end zone on that play. Zach is in the pocket, can't find anybody open. Pressure's coming from the right side, so he rolls out way left. I'm doing hand signals like you guys can see this. But he, he takes off and he rolls back and to the left. Well, Brady Christensen had absolutely annihilated the defender who was coming off of the left edge. And he had taken him so far out of the play that he had stood up. He was done. Like this guy, the defender, I'm not kidding, was like 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage on this particular play. He had been uh, not quite pancaked. Like he wasn't on top of him, but uh, he had thrown him to the ground 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage. And Zach rolled out and went backwards behind the line of scrimmage. And Brady had taken this guy so far out of the play that Zach almost ran into him because all of a sudden he ran into the blocker who has taken who had taken his guy so far out of the play. It was one of the most amazing blocks and it almost resulted in a sack because of what happened with everybody else on the offensive line. Brady Christensen is probably going to the NFL as well. He has not confirmed that. I think he'd be silly not to. Uh, from what we've heard, every NFL team has called about Brady Christensen and it sounds like most of these NFL teams are putting him a second or third round grade on him. I think, so it's a pretty deep class this year in terms of offensive tackles. There are seriously probably 15 tackles who could get drafted. And I'd put Brady right in the middle of that pack right now. Technically, I think he's, he's right at the top. He's one of the most fundamentally sound offensive linemen I've ever seen. He doesn't look like an NFL tackle. Right. He's it, big, but they look like monster human beings. So if Brady can put up some big numbers at Pro Day Combine, if he can get with the right trainer and get some of that NFL look and some of that NFL muscle mass in his upper body that the rest of the tackles who are in the draft are going to have, then I think you see Brady, I don't think he gets out of the second round. Yeah, and it's a little different. I mean, even if you get drafted in the second round, there's a good chance that you are looking at potentially um, – you know, you're looking at potentially starting anyway, but even with offensive linemen, it's very different, right? Like it's, it's not uncommon for a third or fourth rounder to start as a rookie on the offensive line, just because right. there's, you I mean you, the way it's valued and you can kind of scheme around having one sort of wink link there. And it's, you know, you put more value on like needing a quarterback or a game changing, you know, DB, whatever. Um, so there is, there is some opportunity there even if he goes in the first, you know, three or four rounds to make some money. And I think it's, um, I definitely think that he is gone. Seniors who will come back, I think Uriah Leotawa 
comes back. I think back. he's already said he's coming back. Yeah, I mean, it was. I think he's awesome. the only one who has said he's coming. Back. I think he would have probably applied for a fifth year anyway, even without the free COVID season, and likely have come back. Uh, what do we think about Zach Daw? And I think Zach Daw, Brackenell Bakri, and maybe Isaiah Kafusi. I say maybe just because I think he will go through the process, get feedback, and be like, this is exactly what you need to work on and get a grade similar to what a junior would normally do, Isaiah could benefit and BYU could benefit from Isaiah coming back. Um, and he could, but it's, I think he most likely goes, but I could see a possibility that if he has a few concrete things to come back and, you know, work on those, if it's like, you know, you have the potential to be a second rounder, but right now you're looking at a seventh round undrafted guy. I think I- I think I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say that Isaiah's too old for the NFL to give him feedback like that because he's a missionary. I think if I remember right, he was even a gray shirt. Like he he had to delay like a half a year or something before he went on his mission because it was prior to the age change. So he was 19 when he left. And so he came back when he was 21. Like the guy's old. And I think the NFL, the NFL for better or worse, holds that against players. Now, what I do think about Isaiah Kafusi is he is one of the smartest players. And I I've heard this not from my interactions with him, but, and I don't really have any interactions. I wasn't covering recruiting as extensively when BYU recruited him out of Brighton. So, but from conversations that I've had with others who do know him well, he is one of the smartest players and is one of the most well-respected players that I can remember coming out of BYU in a long time. I think he has a great year in co- or a great career, a future in coaching, and it sounds like he has an ambition to become a coach. I think he goes and tries his hand at the NFL, makes whatever money he can, whether that's a practice squad guy for a year, whether that's hoping he can hit, get a training camp, get the signing bonus, and then get cut. But I think he tries, gets whatever cash he can this year, and then you'll see him back next year at BYU as a graduate assistant. I could see that playing out. I think, uh, I think it's likely that that's what happens. Definitely. Um, and then what about Zach Dahl and back, Brackenell Bakri, the two walk-ons turned starters? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, I think of the two, El Bakri seems more likely to come back than Daw. Daw's just been through so much with injuries and things like that. It kind of feels like that. He had, he played really well against UCF last night. It kind of feels like that's a, a he could look at that and say that's a perfect career ender for me. But also the dude has fought and fought and fought to continue to play college football. And BYU, like they need him. Like the Cougars need both of those guys next year. So I could see BYU pushing to get them to come back. But if I had to, if, you know, gun to my head today, I think El Bakri comes back, Daw moves on. I really, I mean, everybody had this idea when the, when the news broke that most of these seniors would take advantage of this year. College football is a grind, guys. And if you don't have the NFL as a carrot looming ahead of you, it's hard to play a full season of college football. Really, that means a full season starting today. The offseason, the workouts, the diets, the on-campus living, all of that stuff. It's hard to do that for a full year for just love of the game. And I think if you talk to most players who have retired, right, and they, you know, 10 years later, they'd kill for one more year. 
But these players aren't that. These are players who just got done with a brutal, brutal, brutal 2020 year in terms of COVID protocols and the restrictions of what they could and couldn't do. I could, I think a lot more players are going to move on than what people realize. Yeah. And I, I mean, to also looking from a program perspective, you have to develop younger players and you can't create a log jam and you don't want to, you know, make a bunch of younger players who expected, you know, saying, Hey, I've bided my time and waited for this guy to graduate to get my turd. And now he's here for another year and I'm burning right. an extra year behind him when he shouldn't be here, you know, et cetera. And it's, you have, you know, from that player development because it's reps are zero sum game, right? Like you can only have yep. one quarterback on the field at a time. And it's so from managing your program, you have to eventually, you know, people just got to move on and, you know, take the next step in their life. Um, so let's look forward a little bit, put on our 2021 goggles, looking into the future. We, as the presidents of Zakistan, what are mm-hmm. we prognosticating about the future of the quarterback and well, how good will Jacob Conover be? <laughs> and that's the question. I, I like to think that I was the original Dax Milne fan. Like there were his mom, like his parents, maybe his siblings and maybe his high school coach. And then me. And I think I have the receipts. If I go back, I've done it before. I think 2016 when he committed as a walk-on, that's when I actually, before his senior year at Bingham, I think is when it was, I said, Hey, watch out for this kid. He's special. And I have written articles. I've done things all along the way that I kind of felt validated that Dax turned out the way that he did this year. I am equally high on Jacob Conover. Now that's not going to look as special because Dax was a walk-on that nobody had heard of. And Conover's a four-star quarterback, but I'm equally high on Jacob Conover And I am willing to say definitively today, December 23rd, 2020, less than 24 hours after BYU wrapped up their season against UCF, that when BYU plays, barring injury, of course, when BYU plays in Las Vegas against Arizona next, uh, against Arizona next year, Jacob Conover will be your starting quarterback. I mean, I think the, obviously who's running the scout team similar to how uh, Max Hall was running the scout team, John Beck's senior year and the buzz out of the, you know, out of the defender, the defensive rooms and what people are saying is like, he looks dang good, right? Like it's the, I mean, you can hear my five month old is very excited just talking here in the background. He's excited about Jacob Conover and like Conover is the real deal. There's a reason he got offered by Nick Saban to go to Alabama. And he, um, you know, it's, he is extremely, extremely good and extremely talented. And I do think that he will be the starter. I think he will be the starter. And I think one of Baylor Romney or Jaron Hall will not be in the program next year. And I think that is more likely to be Jaron Hall focusing on baseball, just because he decides that the grind of football, his body, like isn't gonna hold up to it right like it's i mean we saw his brother kj did the same thing he had to step away from the game because of injuries even though he was looking at getting a little bit more reps in the running back rotation and it's jaron just the health is an issue and he has another sport on the table that he's very good at very good at he has a professional baseball career ahead of him that's not 
any sort of exaggeration of how good he is on the baseball diamond. The kid is good. Is he major league good? I don't know. Baseball minor league systems are crazy, right? Like there's a million things that have to happen to get to the big leagues. But Jaron Hall is a future draft pick and will play professional baseball should he choose to focus on baseball. I don't know that he can continue to do both and get to that level. But if he says, hey, look, I'm just going to step away from football and play baseball, he's a future professional baseball player. Um, And speaking of the opening game in Arizona, I probably next week I will, I'm going to start making calls to see if we can, how many rooms do we need to get a group rate at either the MGM or Mandalay Bay. See, I'm a ritzy guy. Luxor. Get, Get me to the Palazzo. The, the Palazzo, Palazzo. I'm just thinking what Venetian. is close. I want whatever I want walking distance to Allegiant Stadium. That's I get it. I just I want have you ever seen the just the standard room at the Palazzo? No. Look it up. The standard room at the Palazzo Hotel is a suite at any other hotel room. So I go to a conference just about every year, and up until this last year, it was held at the Palazzo in the Venetian. And oh my gosh, you live like a king. Like in the standard room, you have stairs in your room because it's so it's so nice. This is the standard, no upgrades whatsoever. So let's go to the Palazzo. It's a little bit more pricey, but you live luxuriously. And to steal a phrase from Nick Miller and Winston Bishop, we are men of means when we're on vacation. So let's live like men of means and go to the Palazzo. Looking at this, uh, the rooms for the night of the game, it's only 143. Done. I'm in. So Let's book we, it now. So, Let's go to the Palazzo. Okay, so we will discuss. We will work out a – see if how many rooms we need for a give them hell uh, reunion, conference, whatever, of any Hellion who wants to go to Vegas. And we'll see. I don't know what kind of – group funny to have or anything funny story about one of my recent trips to the palazzo i i went with one of my i think he was my boss at the time i can't remember if he was my boss or what he was but a guy i worked with and he's a very wholesome guy like he is very innocent very pure has never really experienced life outside of uh you know davis county utah and we're at the palazzo we're getting ready to go to dinner and we walk out and we're waiting for, uh, we were on a business trip, so we're not worried about Ubers and saving that extra $3. We're, we're just taking taxis because they're there. So we're waiting for a taxi to come and pick us up. And one of the free limos comes and says, hey, do you want to take a limo? Well, I mean, anybody who's been to Vegas more than once knows where the limo is going to take us. The free limo ride ends up at the strip clubs. Like, that's what it is. That's what they do. And my boss says, well, yeah, we'd love a free limo ride. Are you kidding me? And he is halfway in the car and is like, Jeff, let's go. These guys are going to give us a ride. No, man, like they're not going to give us a ride to just anywhere. They're going to give us a ride to the strip club. He needed a little bit more data to understand what was happening. He had just never, he'd never had any sort of experience with that. And it was something that was totally foreign to him. And if you are also a business owner and data and some of these kinds of experiences are foreign to you, not strip club limos, 
but just data. If you need help getting your data, if you need help understanding what it means and understanding how to use it and understanding where it goes, Teeple's Consulting is the place for you. Teeple's Consulting, Ryan Teeple's owns this company. He's a huge BYU fan. He's a great, great person. He's a very, very smart guy. And this is what he does. He has helped out big companies like Ancestry. He's helped out BYU directly. He does a great job in the consulting world. He doesn't act like a regular consultant whatsoever. He comes in, he works with you on a very personal level, and he helps transform your business. Much like my boss needed to be transformed, Ryan can help you do that. If you mention Give Him Help Brigham when you sign up, you may get a $500 referral bonus. Teeple's Consulting, that's T-E-E-P-L-E-S consulting.com. Tell him that Give Him Help Brigham sent you and, uh, and see what kind of deal he can offer you. Great, great, great company, great guy. Uh, moving on, let's, let's talk one last thing here before we move on to our picks. And really, it's just that the, the college football playoff committee, they still suck. I hate them. They just They're... really suck. And that's really all I wanted to say about them. I, I, I really don't have any confidence that even if BYU had beaten Coastal Carolina and was sitting at 12-0 and 0 today, that they would be playing in a New Year's Six game. There is nothing that the committee did with this with Cincinnati or with Coastal that makes me believe that that was ever on the table for BYU. I, I don't think you can trust anything that the committee says, and they would have found a way to be upset about it or, you know, found a way to just, just in general be annoying and stupid and screw over anybody that they can. Uh, and I think I hate the playoff committee. I hate the selection. And until there is something to at least at a minimum, get a camera in the room to record what they are talking about and make, put them on the TV to do a live ranking show. And the reason they won't do it is because they know, you know, what we're going to see and they know what, you know, we're going to complain about and, and no one would be happy with the way that they're going about things. I almost wish that I don't almost wish. I think I do wish this. I think, okay. Anybody who's ever done a group project at school or at work or in any facet of your life knows how they work, whether it's a group of four or a group of 15 people that gets into a room, there always seems to be one or two people who kind of have the loudest voices in the room and they become the leaders. And that's just what works, right? Like they, what they say ends up kind of, running or setting the tone of the conversation. I want to know if I want the committee, the 13 person committee to submit their rankings individually without talking to one another. I mean, the coaches poll does it their final poll of the season. The AP voters do it every single week. I don't see why they can't. I want the committee. If we're going to have a committee and we're going to rely on these 13 people, don't allow them to talk to each other and have one converse or one person dominate the conversation. Make it be 13 individual pollsters that make up the committee that then gets aggregated and weighted into the college football rankings. That's what I would like to see. Let's move on to our picks, Garrett. Last week, uh, I had a pretty decent week. I was seven and three. That's you a, went five a, and five. You're breaking even. 
we're going to have to go back to the very first week we started doing this and start with like a hundred dollar bankroll and say, yeah, we, we will put every single week, you know, all of it, every just, we'll have to do that because sometimes, you know, like not just having a bad week or you aggregate, like you can't just say, Oh, I went, you know, 25 and 20 on the season, right? Like depending if all those losses came, if you went oh and 10, yeah. Right. Like it's, then you're down to zero and, you know, so it can be very thing. So we'll have to do, I'll go through this week and add up where we're at financially with our picks on the season. Okay. I like it this week. uh, We only have six picks to choose from this week. It's kind of the, uh, I mean, it's the pre-Christmas bowls for the most part. And then we get into some of the, the immediately after Christmas bowls. First game hits home for BYU fans. Coastal against Liberty. How awful for Coastal that they ended up in the Cure Bowl against. We Liberty. should go back to the Mountain West, though, Jeff. It being in uh, a G five conference definitely, you know, would have fixed things. Everything for us. It absolutely would have. So Coastal is a seven and a half point favorite, which is shockingly low to me. Seven and a half point favorite against Liberty in the Cure Bowl. I'm taking what a pissed off coastal. They're going to cover easily. And I mean, they feel jaded by the new year six because they were left one spot out and they are going to, f- and they're probably annoyed that they didn't get to play in their conference championship game. Cause if they had played that may have bumped them up to number 11 mm-hmm. and that cancellation also plays into our next game that we're picking here. But I definitely think coastal covers. I think so too. And I just don't know what to expect out of Liberty uh, having not played for as long as they have not played. I wish it was a six and a half point line because Liberty can't score and Hugh freeze. I think I'd take Hugh freeze over Jamie Chadwell, but I, I think coastal is a better team. So I am going to reluctantly take the seven and a half. I'm surprised that the line isn't closer to 10 just because it feels like uh, most of the money, I think it opened up actually like four and a half. If I remember, if I'm remembering right. So the money has gone coastal's way. I think it will continue to go their way uh, up until kickoff. Okay. Next game, uh, UTSA BYU fan favorite UTSA 14 point underdog against UL Lafayette. What are you thinking? This one's tough. Cause I think, I think I'm not sure that Billy Napier is going to be at Louisiana next year. I think he has a couple jobs in mind. He was in the conversation reportedly with Auburn as well. I don't know. And I think that could affect the locker room there, but at the same time, Lafayette knows that, you know, they could have knocked off. They probably feel that they could have knocked off coastal last week. And um, you know, and they're probably annoyed that that game got canceled because of COVID issues with coastal, but also, UTSA is a good thing. I think 14 points just seems like a lot. And because these teams have not played in a while, um, you know, I think it's you kind of you have Jeff Trailer who's on the up and coming, you know, up and comer at UTSA versus Napier, who looks like he may have one foot out the door. I think Lafayette wins maybe by 10 even, but UTSA covers. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I like UTSA to cover. 14's a big spread. Uh, next one, another former BYU opponent. Western Kentucky's a four-point dog against Georgia State. I'll be honest, I know nothing about Georgia State, so I'm going to make this one easy. I'm going to take Western Kentucky because I get the points, but I know nothing about Georgia State. I am also know nothing about this, so I am going to take Georgia State just to so we don't tie. Okay, that's fair enough. purely 100% what I'm doing here. Fair um, 
And for all we know, this is going to end up being a push and Western Kentucky will lose by four points and we tie anyway. Um, next, we have Oklahoma State minus two against Miami. I don't know how I feel about this one. It's This is hit or miss for me. Um, yeah, I... I don't know, man. Both teams have been so streaky. I think that Oklahoma State, their ups are way higher than Miami's ups. Miami has been kind of consistently not very good, and they got exposed against North Carolina. Uh, so I think, I think I like the pokes in this one to cover the two-point spread. Yeah, I mean, at two points, you're really basically talking about the money line. And I don't know. I think ultimately... I mean, both of these teams are very mid, ended up had a lot of promise at the beginning of the year, then ultimately ended up being very middle of the road. And I'm with you. I think I take the pokes. Uh, the next uh, one is another, uh, I mean, another, I guess it doesn't have BYU ties, but it kind of feels like it because uh, it is our replacement rival for Utah. Colorado's. I think we lost Jeff here. Um, I think Jeff's kids may have unplugged his router again uh, because he is gone. So we were going to have Colorado as a nine and a half point favorite versus Texas. I, I'm going to take the Longhorns. I think that Tom Herman finally gets things turned around there and I don't know who will add Jeff's will publicly post Jeff's thing thing. And then on the Christmas Eve classic um, is Hawaii is a 10 and a half point underdog against Houston. And I think that Hawaii actually will cover this one. They kind of got things going and Todd Graham, I think straight up Todd Graham versus Dana Holgerson. I'm taking Graham because Houston has just been a mess all season long. Um, I don't know if Jeff, We'll be able to get his internet back. Um, but with that, we will wrap up this episode, maybe do a bonus secondary pick. And we also want to remind you that we do have the Give Him Hell Brigham store. We have a Zach Wilson exclusive shirt that you can find. We'll post the link to that. You won't want to miss it. We got a new supplier with better, softer fabrics. And until next week, when we do our superlatives, season superlative, end of the year award review show, Give Him Hell.